0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Kino, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is Monday, November the 14th, 2022 in Indonesia. President Joseph Biden of the United States is meeting with the world's most powerful man, according to some people, Xi Jinping, to talk about a complicated relationship between the United States and China. Uh, I'm several thousand miles away in Sonoma, uh, Northern California, much more pleasant, I think, than Indonesia, certainly more temperate. Uh, And I... I'm at the Techonomy event where we're grappling with the future of technology and politics, including, of course, that very complicated, tricky, and controversial relationship between the United States and China. My guest, who is also speaking at the event, uh, is the author of a, a particularly intriguing and controversial new book, Isaac Stonefish has a new book out, America Second, How American How America's elites are making China stronger. Um, Isaac will be talking uh, at the conference, actually interviewed by uh, David Kirkpatrick tomorrow, but we nabbed him first. Isaac, uh, what's your take on the latest conversation today between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping?
1: It seemed both sides wanted to stabilize the relationship rather than improve it, get some predictability on what the other one was doing, and warn about some red lines, mostly around Taiwan, which Beijing has long claimed as a Chinese province, but which has long been an independent nation. The Biden team brought 10 people, half of whom were on the National Security Council and none of whom were with the Department of Defense signaling both that this is not quite at war footing but security is a really important point in the conversation. Uh,
0: Isaac, we had a show a few months ago called uh, China's Red Carpet, which I'm sure you're familiar with that book, by a Wall Street Journal reporter who wrote about China's, and and I'm using this word carefully, it's my word, not his, infiltration of Hollywood, massive Chinese investment in the Hollywood movie business. Is your book um, America second, a broader argument that China is buying into the American economy, to American society and we don't know it, we Americans.
1: I thought China's Red Carpet was a fantastic book and did a really good job of laying out Beijing's influence in Hollywood. Yes, my book takes a broader look at the ways in which the Chinese Communist Party has working with certain American elite strengthened its story in America, and the ways that Americans can push back without being racist, without being McCarthyist, and often without being Trumpian.
0: Isaac, we did a show a couple of weeks ago with an American journalist who wrote a book about her experience producing the Muppets in uh, Russia just after Perestroika, uh, after, uh, uh, after Yeltsin came to power. And it was a book about how American, noble American, liberal journalism and liberal shows like the Muppets failed because of Russian intransigence. Why is it that when the Chinese buy stuff in America, it's the evil Chinese, uh, and we're troubled, we're neurotic, we are uh, concerned that they're owning us, and when the Americans are quote-unquote, infiltrating other cultures. We see it in heroic terms, and when they fail, it's the foreigner's fault.
1: The book that I'll lend to you, uh, Charlton Heston producing a play in Beijing, the eve of 1989, which has a lot of those tropes in it as well about missionary Americans doing good in various evil empires. I think when we have this conversation, one of the things I really try to emphasize in the book is to focus on the Chinese Communist Party and on Beijing, on the party, on the government, as opposed to the people, and making sure that there's a real difference between the way we talk about Chinese people who are incredibly diverse and have a lot of the same faults and advantages and quirks that we do, and the Chinese Communist Party, which I believe is the greatest threat that the world faces.
0: The greatest threat that the world faces. In in what sense? Are they they colonial? Do they want to own the world? Are they warlike? Are they economically greedy? Those are strong words, Isaac. Those are strong words, and
1: the Biggest victims of the Chinese Communist Party have long been and will likely continue to be the Chinese people. So if we look back on the great dictators of the 20th century, the Communist Party is the only one, with the exception of the North Koreans, still in power. The, it's funny, the comparison comes up a lot with climate change and people's worry about climate change, which I do believe is a major threat, but if we look back at human history, that two things that have killed the most people have been mosquitoes and governance, and bad governance is something that... What about
0: the dinosaurs? No, well they were dead before <laughs> we showed up, right?
1: So mosquitoes is a, is a whole other subject for someone who knows a lot more about science than I do. but. We know enough about the problems of bad governance to know that it's a major threat. We know enough about the Chinese Communist Party to know that it's a pinnacle example of bad governance and poses a major threat both to Chinese people, and we can get into that in specifics, helpful, and also to the future of the world.
0: Your book, though, is not really about the Chinese people, and it's not about the future of the world. It's about the future of America, and the critique is that The Chinese are buying up America through uh, rather naïve American elites. I want to get to the meat of the book uh, in a few minutes, but why wouldn't they do that? They are uh, the second economic power, some people might even suggest the first economic power in the world. Isn't that the nature of power, particularly economic power, to invest, quote unquote, or infiltrate other cultures, other economies?
1: the nature of things doesn't imply the morality of things. And you can say that powerful institutions act in certain ways, but then one of the big pushbacks we're having in this country is, oh, just because groups of old white men have always controlled things doesn't mean that's the way that the future should go. The book also focuses... But but, Isaac, I never
0: bring... I mean, we're not talking about race. I mean, you can't create that um, uh, that straw man, it's not an issue of race, it's an issue of power. It doesn't matter whether you're black, brown, yellow, or white, you want power.
1: There's no way to have the conversation about China without having the conversation about race. You can on my
0: show, though. I, I'm not <laughs> interested in this. Why? I, I, Why? I, I appreciate I mean, you're creating. The... A, I think you're creating a straw man here by suggesting that... We can't talk about China without talking about race. Maybe true if you're doing an interview with the New York Times or the Atlantic, but on Keynote, I'm not interested in race. So, are it's, you saying that people can't talk about China without talking about race? I'm
1: thinking that if we're having a comprehensive conversation, we can obviously have a conversation under any structure, any strictures. The racial element is incredibly important because if I think on what's going to make the United States yield to China, One of my biggest fears is that there's a massacre of Chinese Americans here. You kill 60, 100 Chinese Americans, and any movement to push back against Beijing is gone. And so you kill 100 white Americans, that's not gonna happen. So the the, the issue is not uh, we have to follow certain politically correct woke dictates in order to have this conversation. The issue is that if we're trying to come up with a strategy, we have to be mindful of the context.
0: Yeah, I have to admit I'm not convinced on that, but let's get to the the, the meat of the the argument. You suggest in America Second that American elites have been, and I use, this is my language, I'm not sure you would buy into it, have been been bought by uh, the nasty Chinese, by particularly the Chinese Communist Party. Can you name names and how does this take place? So, I do name
1: names. I don't use the phrase nasty. I focus a lot on Henry Kissinger
0: because... He needs a bit more criticism.
1: (laughs) I focus on Kissinger not for his opening to China, but for everything he's done since 1982 to the present. In 1982, Kissinger founded Kissinger Associates, consulting company. I run a consulting company. I have a lot of conflicts of interest with what I say and what I do. Kissinger... For a lot of reasons as far more than I do, far more than probably anyone else. And what I trace in the book is this idea that so many people working in the China space and working on issues involving China would amplify positive voices about China, suppress negative ones, guide policy in such a way as to benefit their own interests and the Communist Party's interests, often at the expense of American interests.
0: Are you suggesting then, I mean Kissinger of course is the most controversial but also distinguished realist, Uh, are you suggesting that um, he's been bought, I mean he might say if he was on the show China's a great power, Um, we have to acknowledge it. What has he done that's gone beyond realism? I'd absolutely say Kissinger has been bought and I would
1: say that Kissinger has never been a realist on China, before 82, yes he was. but. He, you go back, you read his speeches, you read his columns, he betrays very, very regularly and very clearly non-realist, very sentimental, very self-interested viewpoints about China. And so... Why do you think? Has he been bought by the Chinese? I think it's... Is
0: he the Manchurian
1: candidate? It's, I call him in the book, an agent of Chinese influence. It's a question of both money, but also, like you were saying, power. And for someone like Kissinger, ego. Kissinger is very, very explicit about the size of his ego and how he likes to be gratified. And no one does that better than the Chinese Communist Party.
0: Is it also bound up with Nixon?
1: So it's funny. uh, Nixon and Bush Jr. To generally awful presidents. Presidents were the best ex-presidents when it comes to China. So, give an example. In 1989, after the Tiananmen Square Massacre, Bush Sr. sends Nixon and Kissinger on two separate trips to go repair relations with the Chinese. Nixon brings a trusted aide, Kissinger brings two clients and helps them do business in China while they're there. So Nixon's reputation was in tatters after he left, and he worked to try to be as statesmanlike as possible as an ex-president, didn't want to be like Gerald Ford or even like Jimmy
0: Carter, and Kissinger went the other direction. So the Bushes and Nixon and and Kissinger and others, they're all being schmoozed by the Chinese. The Chinese have figured out, at least in your mind, that the way to Kissinger's heart is to, what, tell him that he's a great man, buy him first-class airline tickets, take him out for expensive dinners, is that how it's working? Beyond that, I think the...
1: Girls? Isaac? Uh, (laughs) Boys? Not as far as we know when it comes to Kissinger. Uh, He's a bit old now, I guess. 98, 99 I think he is. It's the immense psychic gratification that comes from constant meetings with, like you said at the beginning, Folks like Xi Jinping, the most powerful people in the world, this idea that only you can understand the greatness that is the Chinese nation. And it's certainly not just Republicans, it's not just Kissinger, Madeleine Albright.
0: Yeah, Madeleine Albright's been on the show again, someone who's recently, well, unlike Kissinger, she's recently departed and was a a very credible liberal voice. How did M- Madeleine Albright get bought by the Chinese? Madeline
1: Albright, after leaving government, started
0: a company which later became known as Albright
1: Stonebridge. Yeah. They're now owned by a Chinese law firm called Dentons. They used to work with a company called Avic, which is a Chinese weapons manufacturer. And so you do wonder why Albright and her company felt the need to go and support a Chinese weapons manufacturer.
0: You mentioned at the beginning of the show that you're not a McCarthyist, which you're clearly not. You're wearing a much more elegant suit than he would ever wear. But there is an element of paranoia, I think, Isaac, in what you're saying. Um, you are using the, the, the China card to, uh, to dirty the reputation of, of many of America's most distinguished diplomats and politicians. Are you suggesting that these people are easily bought? easily schmoozed i I just don't buy it myself
1: i mean i would certainly disagree with that characterization for one none of this is easy these are long complicated campaigns that go back
0: and forth and and they're pre i mean i i'm no great defender of xi jinping but they are pre-Xi Jinping, I mean you can't blame him for all this. Xi Jinping or yes. Kissinger? Xi Jinping, I no, mean all this I... took place before Xi, you know, while Xi Jinping was, you know, in if not political disgrace, certainly not a great deal of power.
1: Where we are today is on the brink of a potential war between the U.S. and China, and we've, for so long, and I don't know how much time you spent in China, i lived there for about six, seven years, for so long, We've blinded ourselves to the nature of the Chinese state and the Chinese regime and these people helped us do that. And I I don't think saying that Albright shouldn't have worked with a Chinese weapons manufacturer makes one a McCarthyist.
0: Are there models, in your mind, of American statesmen, of academics, Of great men and women who have behaved responsibly towards the Chinese without becoming hardcore China hawks? Richard Nixon is a great example. Again, leaving,
1: starting from after his disgraceful impeachment, the way that he both maintained open channels with the Chinese leadership but didn't consult, didn't get into business. George W. Bush as well, very different from his father who made a lot of money. Consulting in China it's the DC revolving door argument brought to the foreign policy world there, there's it's very clear so you're a journalist um, i if I were to pay you twenty thousand dollars to you know go give a speech for me that would probably change the way that you would act and it would be very very subtle and if I gave you regular twenty thousand dollar payments that, that would be an issue there's, there's you, you could be the most unviable person in the world, but that would put something in the back of your mind. Doctors, hospitals have very strict rules about getting drugs prescribed. In the foreign policy world, there wasn't this idea of conflicts of interest on this level. It was just, oh, you can't go back and lobby the government department you're in. And I think we need to think about these things through the how does money change the way that we think and talk? And I fully admit that it does for me, again, in a much lower level than the people I criticize in the book, but we have to understand that this is a motivation for how people act.
0: Where did you find a lot of, this is my word, not yours, where did you find all this dirt on all these, uh, again, quote, unquote, distinguished Americans from Kissinger to Albright? Did you do primary research? How did you find that money from the Chinese was going into their bank account? So there's
1: a lot of rich information on the Chinese internet. There's also, it's worth remembering that until several years ago, it was considered positive to work with Chinese companies in a lot of these contexts. So Kissinger, Albright, Cohen, a lot of them in their promotional materials weren't coy about the companies that they work with. And it's not, oh, Kissinger took an envelope that was filled with cash from XYZ, it's here's the corporate relations between this company and this other company, and here's what this likely means. I think the other thing that's really important to know is that it's so difficult to figure out intentionality, the idea that someone did something for some reason. We're all complex creatures, and the reason that we act has, dozens of different motivations.
0: So it's hard to ascribe motive. You, As you say, you spent six or seven years in China as a journalist. How organized, in your mind, um, in your book, is this Chinese foreign operation to own distinguished statesmen and politicians?
1: So it's less that there's this very clear indication of a blueprint to influence people and more, do you know what the United Front is? Would your listeners like to hear about that? So the United Front is a Leninist concept. Idea being, oh, Lenin, 1910, saw British dock workers striking, realized that even though they're imperialists, they're under the yoke of the imperialists, we can form a united front with them to overthrow global imperialism and and bring on world communism. Chinese adopted that idea, Mao and Zhou and Lai, and realized that united front ideology, namely working with non-communist parties to strengthen the communist party, is one of the best strategies to influence global opinion and to make people quote unquote friends of China. And so a lot of what I describe in the book is this idea of friendship, this idea of using the United Front to influence how people act and behave. Can
0: it be? Can't there be legitimate cultural, political, economic friendships between prominent Americans and Chinese?
1: Would you say the phrase, do you think all lives matter?
0: No. So,
1: 20 years ago, if I were to ask you, do all lives matter, it'd be a non-controversial
0: well, question. Well, I would look at you and think that's an odd thing to say. It
1: would be an odd thing to say, but you could say, oh great, I'm a I humanist. I a trap. I think, <laughs> I think all lives matter, and you wouldn't say... It goes say, without saying.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, all, all lives obviously
1: matter. Exactly. So, but today, that's a very specific political right. statement. So, friendship is a Communist Party term that means aligning yourself with the Communist Party. So I have had a lot of Chinese friends, I still have a lot today, but they're not friends in the way that the Communist Party uses this term because I'm not an agent of party influence by being friends with them. It's like the phrase people-to-people exchange. People will say, why are there not more people-to-people exchanges between the US and China? Well, that's a united front term because people in this context is people approved by the party with unsuspecting Americans. So it's important that as we're having this conversation, we use these words differently.
0: Were were you um, not on the market, but did they try and buy you? Did they try and buy foreign journalists based in Beijing? Absolutely. And it
1: it was less, it was so much more subtle, at least for me, than here's an envelope of cash, do this or think about this in a different way. It was that there are so many questions of things that you just didn't ask yourselves. You, you didn't realize that they were questions that you could ask because of the way that the language and the culture is framed. And also, frankly, in my case, just my naivete, not realizing that oh, maybe I should try to understand what the PLA is doing, their Ministry of State Security is doing.
0: We've had a number of Chinese, not Chinese journalists with expertise in China, and from the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. Uh, Josh Chin uh, Lisa lin they have an interesting book out on surveillance uh, I'm, I'm guessing you're sympathetic to their book uh, and I, I, I'm not asking for names here but are, are there prominent journalists working for leading newspapers American newspapers who you think are rather too friendly with the Chinese? I think the
1: so it's a uh It's a great question, I I try to think about, I I name a lot of names, so I'll stop stuttering and answer. My my philosophy is is to punch up, and a lot of the names that I name in the book are people who I feel like are incredibly prominent and deserve a lot of criticism and, and censure. And the journalists that I know that I feel like are too friendly with the Chinese Communist Party. I don't feel like it's appropriate to criticize them by name. There's certainly plenty of them. But I think the other important piece of this is that a lot of times it's just an opinion. So I believe that the Communist Party is, is the greatest threat the world faces, but that's an opinion. That's how discourse works, and people need to
0: be able to disagree and debate that. But you said that before. What are they, why are they a threat? What are they trying to do? They're trying to make the world safe for
1: global communism and to make China a country that remains under their control. I, I, I think
0: the. But why is that? Why should I care about that? So in Sonoma in Northern California.
1: So there's two answers to that. One is you know, why should you care about what's going on in North Korea? Why should you care about Eritrea or Yemen? Well, but you
0: haven't mentioned North Korea as the greatest threat. Oh,
1: there's 25 million people in North Korea. I think the. Oftentimes, when people ask that question, they think of the world outside of China. So there's, what, 8 billion people in the world, 1.4 roughly are in China. So if you're the greatest threat to 1.4 billion people, you pose a very large threat to a sizable population, percentage of the world. So I think we can include the Chinese people in our thinking, and what the party does to its own people. I think the question of the global threat of it is that, the China and China's potential invasion of Taiwan is the likeliest cause of World War III, which may or may not be nuclear and which may or may not be worse than World War II.
0: Are you suggesting that Xi Jinping is somehow the inevitable consequence of the Chinese Communist Party and that, uh, uh, that the previous quote-unquote liberal regime or more globalizing sympathetic regime of Xi Jinping was um, an aberration.
1: Now, I think that Xi Jinping could have been an accident of history. I think you could look at all of China's leaders that way. We also have to be modest about the utter lack of clarity we have about how the power transfers went, why Xi Jinping made it, why Hu Jintao didn't, why Jiang Zemin lasted for as long or short as he did. So I don't think there's been anything inevitable about it. Perhaps when the archives are open. It will point that way, but they're very, very close now.
0: Okay, so let's say we, uh, as, as I said, I'm slightly skeptical of your argument. Although I, I think there's probably an element of truth in it. Let's say we buy your argument about America second that American elites have been uh, a little too friendly with our Chinese friends. What are we going to do about it? What, what are the, You're clearly not a warmonger, you're not suggesting we go to war over, or I hope you're not suggesting we go to war over Taiwan. Uh, How can American elites push back? Should they not go to China? Should they not study Chinese? Should they not go out to dinner with Chinese officials?
1: So none of the people I criticize in my book have studied Chinese or speak Chinese. It's often those who know very little about the country that makes them dangerous. I strongly encourage folks to study Chinese. I think it's sad that Beijing is too repressive today that I can ethically argue that people should go. I think a lot of it's a question of transparency and corruption and lobbying laws. I think applying FARA. I think talking about race on these issues is incredibly important. I know you scorn that idea.
0: Yeah, because I just, but, but, but I, 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 you know, we, we did a show actually a couple of weeks ago with a historian who wrote a prize-winning book about what she calls the China question and the history of American racism towards the Chinese. So maybe you're right, maybe there's an element there, but how do we escape that? We talk about it explicitly and we diversify the debate. And we, I, I think
1: for so long, people have assumed that Chinese people are sympathetic with the party, and that Chinese Americans want a closer relationship with China, and forget the diversity of those viewpoints. It's a huge amount of pushback, a huge amount of arguments on both sides. And I I do think-
0: But now you're suggesting we go in for regime replacement? I mean, if, if we believe that the Chinese people are not on the same page as the regime, so what?
1: Yeah, I think you're, you're making a, a couple of fanciful steps there from what I was saying. I think the, the idea, like you were saying, the book's focused on America, and the idea is we need to have a debate about what Americans should do about China. I, I also would say that regardless of what I think about what the United States should do if China invades Taiwan, I would be stunned if Congress doesn't push for a muscular response or, quite frankly, to go to war with China over Taiwan, especially if the island lasts longer than three days to a week.
0: But, but, Isaac, we're living in the early part of the 21st century. This isn't the 19th century. America can't go to war with China because they'll destroy the world. The. It's a form of that, that, insanity. I mean, the fact that you could even mention that with a straight face seems to me to be music.
1: I mean, that was true in the Korean War and went to war there. That's true with Russia Ukraine. Russia can destroy the world.
0: Well, no to one war. talks about going to war with Russia.
1: Of course people do. People talk about going to war with Russia all the time.
0: you just not.